0: This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies, as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts, so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part, Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing, with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello, and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann, and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind the scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Alex Tong. Alex is a principal at Information Venture Partners. Information Venture Partners is a Toronto-based venture capital firm focus on early-stage B2B SaaS applications for the financial services industry. In this episode, we discuss Alex's time spent in corporate development at Hootsuite, what makes a great board member, and the importance of founder-led sales. Please enjoy my conversation with Alex Tong. Alex, I'd really like to start with your time at, at Simon Fraser University, SFU in particular, You're at BD School of Business. Why did you choose to do a business degree?
1: Yeah, great question. It kind of fell on me accidentally, to be honest with you. I, throughout my high school journey, I I was really quite unsure about uh, what path I wanted to take uh, post high school. Uh, Kind of in grade 10, grade 11, I fell uh, in love with digital art, photography, uh, coding, uh, website building. Uh, In fact, I build websites. shot photos f- for people, uh, for money and, and in kind kind of, um, in kind kind of, uh, consideration. And so I, I initially thought I was going to kind of get into computer science or some, something in the sciences, hard sciences realm. Um, and I, I think as the coding classes became more complex, I actually realized I was probably less interested in, uh, you know, locking myself in a dark room and coding and probably more interested in the other elements of of technology, uh, through kind of my freelance, uh, side hustle work, uh, the kind of intersection of technology and business started to resonate with me. And so like, I had to pick something when I filed, when I made build applications that, uh, uh, to university. And I frankly just picked business, uh, through process of elimination. I didn't really want to do sciences. I didn't really do comp side. Uh, I wanted to have some uh, semblance of making money. So I didn't take arts, And so I, I I landed on business and I picked Simon Fraser University for his free co op program. Uh, for kind of a lost soul like me, that, that was probably a pretty good benefit uh, to have uh, through my uh, university journey, being able to have two or three work terms and figure out what I wanted to do uh, through kind of practical experience paid, that sort of thing. So I zoned in on Simon Fraser University and and joined the business school and majored, eventually majored in finance.
0: And then after university, you jump into an investment banking role. What was the main kind of driver behind that? And what were some like fundamental things that you learned in that role that maybe that you still use today or just some 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 habits you picked up during that time?
1: Yeah, certainly. I think it was my second year where I, I decided You know, uh, the route that most folks were taking was study accounting and go get a job at big four. That was probably the least appealing thing for me to do. And I fought hard uh, to probably avoid that path. Uh, I still studied accounting, but I wanted to do finance. I I was very interested in investing uh, public stocks, obviously, just given kind of what exposure I had to the market then. Um, And certainly... Wanted to double down on that, uh, found that investment banking was the most optimal route to gain the greatest amount of skills in finance and corporate finance in such a compressed time period. Uh, and so I was really up for that challenge and journey to to pursue investment banking. And I did that for two years. It was a grind. It was 80 to 100 hour weeks, uh, but I would do it all over again if I had to, uh, from a set perspective. The things I picked up and, and still use today are really a lot of soft skills, like hard work, effort, sense of urgency, uh, teamwork, uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, and certainly my network, it's kind of like kind of folks that I've been able to build relationships with from my peer group to folks much more senior to me. I think all are all, are, all still resonate um, and kind of come into handy today. So a, a lot of soft skills, but obviously some of the hard skills too. Um, I I pick up uh, from a logic perspective and financial thinking perspective, uh, but of course, applied at a very different level to my business today, which is venture capital.
0: And so you make a jump after investment banking, you know, maybe usually the stereotypical route is to go into private equity or hedge funds, but you join Hootsuite and on the corporate development side. What really spurred that? Like, why did you want to jump into tech? Like, what was Hootsuite like at the time when you joined, and and what interested you about the corporate development side?
1: Yeah, so I think year two of my stint in investment banking, you kind of have to decide whether or not you want to be, uh, go through the investment banking, uh, um, hamster wheel, or kind of move into private equity or recruit for more a more traditional role, like the ones you've mentioned. Uh, I, unsurprisingly, as you've kind of probably heard, I chose neither. I wanted to kind of rekindle my interest in technology, the one I was scratching when I was a teenager and kind of heading into the university path. Uh, I felt like that was kind of slowly escaping my grasp and, and I wanted to really kind of get a handle on it and see if I could turn something that was largely a glorified hobby into something that was more professional and more of a career. Um, at the same time, I had some great skills, um, hard and soft in, in finance and banking that I developed. And I wanted to find a role where I didn't feel like a total kind of lost soldier uh, and I could add value within a tech company immediately. You know, being kind of 25 years old, 24 years old like, at the time, I think, um, I wanted to really zone in on where I could be, add value right away and kind of see a step function uh, improvement in my kind of career trajectory and, and slope and that sort of thing. Um, And so, corp dev was this like nebulous role that every organization defined differently, and very few organizations actually had at the time in technology, especially at kind of the early, early growth stage. I was a fortunate. I was fortunate enough to meet a couple of companies in Vancouver upon my return to the city. I had started my career in Toronto with uh, with BMO, and and you know a couple. And one of those companies was Hootsuite, and they were actually looking for someone not right away, but over time as I got to know the business and got got to know my future boss, um, that they had a need for someone like me who had some of that hard, the hard and soft skills of corporate finance, but wanted to obviously take that, distill that, water it down a little bit, so to speak, and focus on early stage technology companies and building relationships um, with early stage companies and building relationships with uh, product product leaders, tech leaders, and sales and marketing leaders internally within our company and, and help um, drive growth, um, strategic growth for that business. And that, for corporate development, that largely meant kind of inorganic growth uh, and part, strategic partnerships and fundraising. And so that was a really interesting role that I, frankly, was lucky to uh, kind of uh, be fortunate enough to join. And I joined there as first uh, team hire in 2013.
0: What were some, some new skills that you had to learn in that role? And, you know, like, obviously there are some similarities between like a corporate finance role. In a corporate development role. But what were some new things that you learned that got you really excited and maybe have been helpful to you now as a venture investor?
1: Yeah, so, you know, beyond, you know, the Hootsuite is a SMB and enterprise software platform to help uh, individuals and businesses manage their social media presence from communications to support to sales. And frankly, beyond being a, user, a general user of social media. And I have a, I have a side, I have a side hobby, side hobby back in the day we can talk about. I obviously didn't know much about the world of SaaS, didn't know much, much and much less the world of social media technology. And so being able to like jump into that role, I, I learned a couple of things really quickly. I, I learned how to get really smart or at least smart enough to be dangerous on concepts that were uh, probably foreign to me at the onset. Uh, and get, get up this reasonably quickly. Um, and you know, the, the role at corporate development is very much a cross-functional team sport role. I had to interface with folks across sales, marketing, product, engineering, executives and other roles and not sound like a dumbass to be honest with you. And had to had to have a, a more than one ounce of credibility because if we were tasked to help to uh, be a business partner and help our teams kind of collaborate to, uh, with, with, with each other and help with our team to find the best opportunities to step function increase our growth without ascending the business units in our company because that might mean uh, not being able to make that higher that they were thinking about making that higher in the roadmap because we could just buy a company to do that service thing so it's like really people management uh, not uh, being delicate with that but also just driving business success and being pragmatic about well what really makes uh, the most to value, uh from a creation standpoint, you know, in in uh, in our in startup business. So, I learned a lot of those skills.
0: What was the side hustle?
1: I DJing. I was a DJ, and I I I like many other uh, starving, struggling DJs. Uh, yeah, you had to use social media to make uh to announce the world and broadcast your your presence, and obviously promote your music, and so. I was actually using Hootsuite as an individual user. to Post my links on SoundCloud to you know promote uh, an uh, upcoming show, is that that sort of thing?
0: And what was your show name? I forget,
1: to be honest with you. It's been uh, it's been so many years. I have a two year old now, so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm banished from from using the turntables these days. Um, but. I
0: actually, I actually don't remember.
1: I think it was Future Mixtape or, or something.
0: That's cool. Um, And then, so, so you've kind of gone maybe more, you know, let's not call it like traditional route, but you kind of gone investment banking. You've done some corp dev at Hootsuite. And then what happens then? Are you looking for other opportunities? How do you join? How do you get into the the, the venture space? Had you heard about information venture partners? Did you know some of the team there? How did that? kind of relationship start.
1: Right. So I'm in Vancouver at Hootsuite. Um, I, I, I was there, for, I was at Hootsuite since 2013. I left in 2016, but leading up to that, I think we grew to about a thousand employees and, um, and the many, many millions of AR, let's just put it that way. And it became a much different company than the company that I was uh, more keen on kind of being in. Uh I kind of lost, you know, frankly, lost some of that early stage magic that that appealed to me when I joined the business in twenty thirteen. Um, you know, there's growing pains, much, you know, much like there's growing pains with any other fast growing company growing kind of so, you know, multiple X and revenue and employee count over a very short period of time. And so I really thought I did some introspection and I and I thought to myself, boy, I actually really feel like I can add much more value at an early stage business. Um, and it just kind of, that, that's what gets me out of bed. Um, you know, at the same time, I didn't actually think about venture capital too much. I, I just thought about my next leg uh, uh, as, a, as a holistic kind of, next, uh, as a holistic um, thought exercise. And I, I thought about maybe i join an early stage business or start my own business. Um, and in venture capital, I kind of started to get to know uh, more of through, uh, friends and friends of friends who are in the business and, and kind of uh, acclimated me on the industry. And I kind of, the the eyes lit up and I got really intrigued and something I didn't really think about would, would be a viable career now. Remember, I'm in Vancouver. There are very few venture capital firms in Vancouver now and their shares as heck was very few back then. And so that didn't seem like a viable career opportunity in Vancouver, let alone Canada. And so I was, you know, becoming more and more intrigued. I saw the success of Food Suite being kind of this, at the time, a, you know, a, an early growth Canadian darling, one of two in Canada that was able to attract US venture dollars as well as some Canadian venture dollars. And you know, I kind of was really looking to see if I could take the intersection of investing with early stage uh, technology and, I, and venture capital felt like this really interesting nexus of the two where I could probably flex my uh, investing muscles or, or, or to hone that investing muscle. At the same time, scratch my itch and kind of being kind of still involved at the early stage, but working with many founders, uh, different business models, um, different personality types, uh, different challenges, different opportunities. And that starts to really appeal to me. And then lastly, I'm a proud Canadian. And I, I thought to myself, well, why, why do I have to sell it to the U.S.? Why, do, why, why should I have to move to the U.S. to start a career in venture? and venture? Um, You know, the ad information venture partners opportunity. I just kind of honestly discovered online. It's it's very benign answer, but I found their LinkedIn posts and uh, I saw the two partners and founders there just started this firm very recently. I there were a few mutual connections, so I I knew I could diligence them. And uh, as I discovered and got to know the the firm, I they were kind of uh, one of a few GPS that had this amazing track record of experience. Uh, they were a, they were a, uh, they were GPS of a corporate VC arm here in Canada. Now looking to hang up their own shingle, and you know, it kind of started to started to scratch my own early stage entrepreneurial muscle. I could be part of an early platform and build something kind of bigger than just myself, bigger than just being an investment team member. So that's kind of how it all came about.
0: And for, for for someone who's maybe not familiar with Information Venture Partners. What is the the firm focused on? What stage do you invest at? Like what verticals do you invest in? Are you Canadian solely focused? Are you investing in the U.S. as well?
1: Yeah, Information Venture Partners, we're an early stage B2B venture capital fund investing in companies that are reshaping financial services and finance across Canada and across the U.S. So typically that, you know, conventionally that would be B2B fintech. But it could also mean that uh, SMB or enterprise software where, uh, financial services or finance would be a key beneficiary. So not just, not just fintech, classic, classical fintech, but vertical market SaaS or horizontal SaaS where we believe financial services and finance would be key beneficiaries. So companies could include cybersecurity, uh, reg tech, AML, KYC, fraud, identity, uh, CFO tech, like, you know, all, all, all the above kind of would, would materially reshape and improve the way financial services is being kind of delivered and consumed. And those are the areas that we're laser focused on as a venture fund. The, our, our corporate venture genesis was as, a, as, as RBC, venture partners, FinTech, and SaaS investing team. And so we were investing in FinTech 1.0, SaaS 1.0, obviously before my time in the early 2000s to 2014. Uh, we bought our fund from the bank in 2014. We rebranded as information um, and raised our first fund in 2016, and that's when I joined. Um, our, our, from a
0: stage perspective, we typically invest uh, in the post-seed, Series A stage. So, for the last few years at at Information VP, what what are some things that you've really learned that's made you a better investor? Like you had like this great underlying skill set from your corporate finance, investment banking days. You had some corporate development at a fast-growing tech company. What are some things that you had to learn on top of that, or maybe some things that you had to unlearn to get really good at your current role? Yeah,
1: no, that's a great question. Well certainly one thing i ha one thing I had to unlearn is that there's more ways there's many ways to build a successful company. Um, you know, this Hootsuite story is is still the book is still to be written and complete um, I, but I would say that there were some great tailwinds behind us that allowed us to achieve kind of incredible revenue growth and success in short order. But I think there were some pitfalls that uh, we and other companies kind of faced in in terms of long-term thinking and thinking about what our second act is and and understanding um, the market that we were operating in and, and being kind of one step ahead from a product innovation standpoint. And so working in the types of businesses that we we invest in today, we have companies that are Kind of creating their own category, being an n of one company in a new market, right? Like almost, almost helping Gardner and Forrester define what that new category is. But we also have companies that are, let's say, more evolutionary in in, the, in their um, approach. They have uh, they're disrupting a large incumbent solution used by many big financial and non financial organizations. They're going to slowly, slowly chip away at market share with a much superior product. Um. But they're, they're going to do it over time. And so I, throughout my seven years here, I, I've learned that there's many more ways to build an enduring, successful business than the one company or two companies that you hear about on TechCrunch or your own lived experience. Uh, from, from things that I've learned as well that I've had to learn is, you know, I have had experience with financial services. I worked for two financial bank and services companies. I, Financial services was a key vertical at Hadesuite. Um, I covered financial services at the bank, um, a bit of a meta uh, a statement, but it's true. But there's just so much kind of plumbing within financial services that is just, when you look under the hood, there's just so much complexity and nuance uh, that you've had to kind of, I've had to gain from a subject matter domain expert, expertise. Um, and there's also just so much nuance. There's pl- that software is bought at financial organizations largely is a political decision as well as a kind of like quantitative innovation driven decision. And so learning about those attributes and understanding kind of how to, how, how, do you compel an organization to take a chance on an early stage business. And lastly, I mean, and it's great thing about our business is it's a very apprenticeship driven approach and over the six or seven years here. Um, One thing I had very little exposure to is on the board and governance side, being a director, being an observer, obviously our new new skill sets I've had to develop here as a VC and I great and supportive partners and good co-investors that have helped shape kind of the complexion of how I kind of um, be a board member, how I can be a positive kind of board observer and companies that are supporting.
0: Could you give an example of, you know, I think when most people think about fintech, they might think about you know, Brex, well, Simple, Coho, more of like maybe a consumer focus, but you mentioned some other categories there, you know, that could be deeply embedded within these financial services firms or banks. Um, could you give an example, whether that's, you know, like an investment you can talk about publicly or just some other spaces that are not kind of the stereotypical uh, consumer fintech?
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, one of our more recent investments is a company called Empyrean Solutions. They're in, a, they're based out of a suburb in Massachusetts. Uh, we co-led that deal with uh, uh, another private equity and uh, growth equity investor that we've co-invested with in the past. And they're building what we call asset liability management software. Every bank, every credit union um, needs to have capabilities to. Better manage and optimize for uh, the assets and liabilities on their balance sheet. Frankly, all the deposits. How do you optimize uh, the, your, your 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 deposit mix, your your asset mix for you know capital ratio planning for for treasury management for financial planning and all sorts of other purposes like that. Um, and that's that's a table stakes. That's a must have. Yet the two companies we we're disrupting, or the two or three companies we we're disrupting in this category have been around for several decades, to be honest with you. And so we're going up against giants. It's it's a product that we're chipping away at market share, um, sh- um, I wouldn't say slowly, but more methodically. Um, and it's it's a market that we're starting to win in because the incumbents are, the the, the, the our customers and prospects are, realize that the 20, 30-year-old solutions are less nimble, less flexible, um, and less desirable from a usability standpoint in today's age of software. And, and frankly, to be honest with you, with the news surrounding Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic, uh, people are, people's, people have a heightened, uh, uh, attention now back to asset liability management. And, you know, folks are starting to re, relook at their processes and relook at technologies and tools that they're using for running, running their bank and, You know, I think Imperium is going to be well positioned to uh, capture some of that market share from a tailwind perspective.
0: Investing in your space, like Information Venture Partners, definitely focused on some verticals, some key areas. What do you think makes a successful company in that space? Is it people that have industry experience? They fundamentally understand the problem. Plus, it's a great product. Plus, maybe. They have some connections to get through that, those political hoops. Um, are there some differences between other, uh, other verticals where maybe it's just, hey, it just has to be a great product and you just distribute it? Or is it just kind of a bunch of different things?
1: Yeah, that's great. That's a great question. And it, it,
0: it, I'll
1: give you a bit of a nuanced answer, and I think it depends on the market you're going after. Um, as an example, uh, I'm on the board of a company called StrikeRaf it's SMB software to help businesses of all sizes, uh, rapidly obtain and maintain, um, uh, compliance certifications that go with your security audits more successfully, i.e. SOC 2, ISO 27001, that sort of thing. Um, that business is a market pull business in the sense that the snail cycles are very quick. Uh, the ACVs are are reasonable for kind of an SMB mid-market business. And there's just a lot of market pull where, um, where we are looking at, uh, you know, we're looking at optimizing sales cycles in terms of like days, not months uh, or quarters. Uh, and so I look for businesses that have really strong uh, UX/UI uh, and and founders in a really interesting domain. Um, I think it's perhaps I wouldn't say less important domain than enterprise software and so like the big banks, but domain is still important in the sense that you need to have empathy for your customers and prospects uh, for the problem that you are solving with your software. And so whether or not domain experience means you've been in compliance tech or been in that industry you're selling to, or you've uh, you've lived that experience for as, as an example, as a founder or as an executive at a, at a company, I think having some sort of lived experience or empathy, uh, whether or not that equ- equates the domain experience, I think is, is very important. Now, when I look at our enterprise software, investments, companies that are selling six, seven figure ACV deals. I look at companies that are really indexing high on, on domain experience, uh, especially at the founders and CEO level. Remember when we invest in companies, uh, a large component of our companies are still selling exclusively by, via founder led sales. Maybe someone has hired their first or second AE or has started the branch away from that, but by and large, the first 10 million, of revenue call it, We've assumed it's kind of largely driven through family led sales, and so we look at someone that has the kind of domain uh, experience as well as connectivity uh, within their kind of prospects and customers, at least to kind of uh, get to your first kind of million or two pretty effectively. And that's also important because you know it's that would also mean it suggests that they're selling a product that folks need. So he or she has had a live experience. He or she has also has the connections to penetrate and sell so to large institutions that take many quarters and years, sometimes even decide on taking a chance or a flyer on the early stage business. And so we look for that really high, we index that really highly. And and frankly, we were, we've we're been investing in, in FinTech and technologies for financial services and finance for 20 plus years. And so we pair kind of the insights and, and domain experience of the founders that kind of come through our door every day with our market research and our channel checks and our LPs that kind of guide us and also Shape the complexion of, um, you know, what what you know of our decision be of what become what's kind of more interesting from a market tailwind perspective because we want to inv- obviously invest in companies that can have a high high degree of escape velocity and can kind of rapidly mm-hmm. obtain market share in what is obviously an increasingly competitive um, market year year in year out in fintech and so we look for kind of elements of escape velocity and and and, and obviously team is just incredibly important looking for someone who's all in looking for someone with great aptitude, a great good attitude and can hire a players
0: you mentioned escape velocity there and founder led sales you know you know roughly getting to that million dollar mark or close to it how do you how do you determine whether it's just you individually or as the team more broadly how do you what things do you look for that equal escape velocity so it's like You've gone to a million dollars in revenue, which is fantastic. It's amazing. But how does that become a hundred million? So like, what are some little things that you're looking for there that give you a sign that, Hey, like this is a possibility.
1: I, I, you know, it's a good question. It, there's no hard science, scientific answer to that. It's really more hard than anything else, especially at the stage where we're investing in. Um, so beyond just a team, obviously. Some of the components I'm looking for is this nice balance between push and pull, and can the founder and sales team strike a good balance between push and pull? I in every market, I want to see enough pull such that there's a good tailwind or tailwinds behind the market that allows companies like the ones that I'm evaluating or investing in, but quite frankly, others have a higher probability of success because the market is the market is driving to the man, and they're being pulled in the direction that would that allow for an increased probability of closed one deals uh, for the product that they're serving. And so um, having that is kind of really important because it's as smart as you as a founder, you are as talented as you as you can be selling if you're in a market that's just devastatingly slow growth, um, lots of friction, you know, there's probably better uses of and better and higher uses of your time in our capital. Uh, and so we look for a good, good kind of dynamic between pull. But frankly, because, you know, selling into the financial industry um, is, is a tougher industry to sell into, as an example, versus selling to a startup. Uh, we look for founders that have a s- strong kind of aptitude and ad- attitude and their teams have strong aptitude and attitude to push and be able to get that, large, get that deal across the finish line, drive that higher ECB, figure out, and 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 challenge our prospects and customers in what they want from a, to see from a product, and, and kind of the output of that being hopefully a much more innovative um, sales motion, but really a much more innovative product that can be light years ahead of right. you know the market. And so looking for folks to push the boundaries a bit, push their prospect, push their customers, and in, in understanding what they want and what they would want in the future, and, and delivering a product that's kind of much more compelling. In the status quo and from and from comparables today.
0: What do you see as some common mistakes since you are in the B2B space invest investment-wise, what do you see as some common mistakes that, you know, whether it's founders or the founding team or the company more broadly, what what are some common mistakes for the sales process?
1: In the common mistakes I see in a sales process are hiring your CRO or hiring uh, an outside CEO or first or second sales rep way too early before you as a founder even figure out how to sell. I think it's really critical that you get your, the first handful of customers, your first handful of AR whatever that is. You know, I think it's, there's so much nuance in, in selling and in convincing um, organizations small and large to take a bet on a small business. And, you know, really, can I, getting a really strong grasp of, uh, choosing connect kind of word, voice, to customer is just like ultimately so important to have early on and kind of outsourcing sales to someone else, just because, you know, you don't want to do it, or you feel like you need to, you're not good at it. Or you feel like you need to focus your time on other things. I think are all poor excuses I think mean, you really, as, as painful as it might be, or as, as, as needed as it, as it, as it is in many, many instances, I think you gotta sell, you gotta sell your way to a million. Uh, yourself, at least uh, at least a million yourself, or largely yourself, uh, with some support, obviously maybe from an advisory consulting uh, standpoint or a teammate standpoint, but probably not outsourcing it to your first hire, your second, or your first CRO. can
0: great advice. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that kind of post-investment, like you you talked about, you know, that kind of board director, board observer, like building up that skill set. What have you learned over your time? Uh, at Information BP about being a great board member.
1: Yeah, good question. And I'll kind of get tell uh, the way I learned about it is honestly learning through my partners. I think venture is a team sport. I firmly believe that, and you know, joining the right team, the GPS, is really an important input in in determining how successful you are as a as a board member, as an investor. Um, as you kind of grow in seniority and experience, and so I was able and fortunate enough to sit on a number of boards as an observer for um, um, our uh, our GPS, and I and I've been able to learn and develop my own style based on the stylistic attributes that I've seen um, work uh, out well uh, for each of my GPS, who I think are probably pretty different people have really strong, you know, foundational overlap and core values and, and ethos, but I think operate um, a bit differently from a governance level, um, have great kind of d- complementary value adds from a governance level, from a, a strategic level, and, and frankly, attracts different types of founders, uh, each of them differently. And so I've been able to kind of see how to kind of take the best of the two worlds, so to speak, my two partners, and and figure out what my own style is through that period of time. And, and then I didn't kind of find what my own style is and and what tech founders I really, really enjoy working with and, and start to develop my own kind of um, board director rhythm as I've been able to serve on a number of boards now today. Um, and so, yeah, there's no magic, kind of no magic formula, but just being able to learn through apprenticeship, develop my own style. And, and frankly, my style is, to be as supportive of a board member as possible. We only make a handful of investments each per fund. And so each investment we make, we do it with a high degree of conviction. We're not a spray and pray um, investment firm. We go in with high conviction, particularly at the early stage, typically lead, typically take a board seat. And we hope to be the most highly engaged board member and, and investor on the cap table for the companies we support. And, you know, being highly engaged and supportive doesn't mean being in your grill, in your face, and in the cookie journal uh, 24 seven. It's really just taking the engagement model and and fine tuning it for the founders that we meet. Some folks may not actually need it or want that type of engagement um, to that degree. And some may actually need it or want it, especially in spurts, especially in specific moments in the company's journey. And so we wanna make sure we give ourselves enough bandwidth to step in and be helpful a good sounding board and help them with uh, coaching them with connections um and, and not just capital
0: might be an over discussed topic you know whether you're on social media or just in the news with ai now but i feel like ai could have a lot of impact in finance just due to the large amounts of data that are that are there to analyze are you seeing more companies like looking to add AI to their product or, you know, they're just AI first and they're propping up everywhere. And how do you remain focused or actually try and find true value due to kind of maybe a bit more noise in the space there? Right. When I, when I evaluate teams and companies that come through right door,
1: I, I always try to think about or ask, why are they building this company? You know, certainly they, uh, I assume they haven't gone out of the bed one day and decided, hey, I want to build a a generative AI company. Although, frankly, that, that that may be the motivation for for some companies uh, a bit tongue in cheek, but, but but could be true. Uh, and so, I really kind of get deeply understand the motivations of why they are building a company, and that ultimately, um, that ultimately kind of kind of teases out the true reason for building that company. Now, with respect to AI, I re- that's an area that I really want to understand why folks are building in AI. Because when I started in the business in 20, and when I started in venture capital in 2016, uh, the, the, the height of machine learning in Canada and AI was really starting to kind of uh, take a stronghold um, with the Vector Institute and a bunch of companies kind of with a dot AI in their name sprouting up. And, and then that, soon after that became blockchain. So I want to make sure that, you know, when like, we're investing in companies, there's a true motivation for why they are doing something. Why they're an AI company? Why are they embedding AI in their systems, versus you know them articulating that because that they think that get them the best valuation with the greater chance, the greatest chance of funding. And so I pair kind of the technical um, innovation and the technical um, uh, technical uh, knowledge with the kind of market need for that. And so with, with with respect to financial services, I think we believe generative AI and AI uh, has a material role to play in all aspects of financial services, both operational and customer-facing. Now it's just making sure we find um, the right companies and technologies to either uh, embed that solution or lead with an uh, an AI solution. Um, um, But we're ultimately still pairing the technology, innovation, and know-how with the market. And so we want to make sure it's not a hammer looking for a nail, but there's a hammer being able to strike a lot of nails very quickly.
0: I like that. What is your view on the the current, you know, technology investment market here in Canada right now just with, you know, valuation crunches, some layoffs. What do you think about that market more broadly and where do you see things kind of going in the next year or two years? And then also, you know, is are the companies that you're investing in do you find them to be less affected just because, you know, they're selling, you know, B2B or they're selling into financial services which you know, don't have as much as that up and down as other industries might have.
1: I would say the types of companies we've been historically attracted to or are, are have, have generally more macro resiliency um, than perhaps other companies that we've elected to pass on or, or, or deprioritize. Uh, as I, a good chunk of our software companies that uh, we've invested in are building operational uh, software to effectively re, re, retool the plumbing of financial institutions or or finance tools. And so I think largely speaking, I think mean, we believe there's a modernization uh, play to be had for each each of those companies operating in each of those industries. And I think regardless of whether GDP is growing at 5% versus 1%, I think we, we still believe over the long term and we all, we have a long-term view in our investing horizon. regardless of economic cycle coming out of it where this the companies that we're investing in have a have a have a have a you know have a good kind of market that they're playing in and can, can reasonably be a large business kind of coming out of the coming out of our investment hold hold period so i think that's kind of how we uh that's how we think about things at a high level
0: what what are some of your opinions or views on just like the broader canadian market currently like, where do you see things going in the next year or two? Um, obviously, there has been a lot of valuation crunches and, and some layoffs, but um, what are some optimistic signs or things that you, you see coming up? So,
1: that we've had a, obviously, late up until 2021, the market was very frothy. Capital was flowing up plenty and, and I thought I, th- I thought it was great as a great moment for Canadian tech because capital was borderless. Uh, many entrepreneurs felt compelled during that vintage era uh, to start companies and 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 attempt innovations. Of course, some of those innovations were probably more experimental in hindsight. And you know, there may be some of those companies are having trouble raising money or about to shut down or sell uh to, to the business, et cetera, or find a home. But I think we're we're seeing some really durable innovation come out of the broader tech ecosystem, but specifically in Canadian uh, tech as well. Now with a softening macro in 2022 and in 2023, I think we're starting to obviously hear about stories of companies that haven't been able to raise another round of venture capital to kind of keep, keep their business going. And so what I, what I fear is that the venture ecosystem in Canada and the U.S. Um, uh, does not support the ecosystem as 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 much as they they have in the last few years. Uh, what I'm optimistic about is I strongly believe that won't be the case because the companies that the the employees and the founders that have built their business in Canada over the last 15 years in our bull market have re- basically obtained a supercharged MBA in in technology that. They probably wouldn't have able, been able to get in any prior era in, in Canadian tech in, in the history of Canadian technology, just with the amount of capital, the amount of talent, both from traditional and tech industries trying to build a company in tech, um, and just the number of investment, um, and, and, and dollars in, into Canadian tech. I think, of course, there's going to be some failures, but that's just the name of the game with respect to venture backed innovation and tech innovation. What I'm really hopeful of is seeing. The next generation of founders, maybe the 2023, 2024, 2025 cohort of companies just being started by some killer founders that have cut their teeth inside Canadian tech that have had some great successes, but frankly, some probably shitty challenges. And I think that's actually a good thing that that founders that are building businesses in the next few years have had some battle scars and had some scar tissue and had some challenges, but they've also seen it. They've also had their bite of the apple. They've also seen what success is like. Or could look like and I think we'll be more driven than ever before not to mess things up if in in, in in the event that they, they joined the company previously or founded the company that went through some hard times and will I think have a greater chance of success success I think that's gonna that's just gonna be so good for the venture ecosystem and for Canadian tech and I'm really thrilled as a venture investor to back that next generation of founders who won't be afraid to start a business. And won't be afraid to start a business in a, in a hard area, such as selling to financial services or selling enterprise. Um, because they know the capital is there. They know failure is not a negative and, and they know that they're smart people. They, they can live the fun man of the day and they can do something else and there's risk capital available. So I'm very excited about the next f- several years of Canadian tech. Uh, not, not just the one next one or two, because I think there's the founders who are going to come through our door. Just, just going to, they're just going to be like, you know, just so much to have so much more experience. It's going to be great.
0: That's a great way to look at it. And I completely agree on all fronts there. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round and would love to know what your favorite book is. And if you're not a book person, just kind of any other content that you consume.
1: Yes. Uh, I'm reading a book. I'm technically listening to an ebook called the power law right now. It's just an incredible book about the history of the venture e- ecosystem uh, so largely, kind of Silicon Valley and East Coast U.S. based, um, but there's a really good history about what what the, how the concept of power law applies, where a minority of of companies or investment drive a significant minority of rejo- returns and innovation. And so, just you know, I'll, it's just a really good uh, history lesson in the, the the successes and the flameouts within the pursuit of power law. Uh, Returns and outcomes and, and innovation, and I, I think it's just a great ebook to read, listen to, or a book to read for, for all folks uh, interested in the venture ecosystem. And, and frankly, I think uh, the concept should be um, well well read by folks operating the uh, ecosystem. I think because we should all be playing bigger and, and, and propping our market up and thinking bigger. And I think the power law is a great kind of uh, great start to helping folks think bigger.
0: Yeah, that is a great book. Would love to know what you're most excited about in the next year, personal and professional.
1: Yeah, the most on the on the personal front. Yeah, I have a two year old daughter. She's a, she's about to be two and a half, and she's going to enter she's going to leave daycare to go into preschool. So personally, I'm really excited to kind of see her grow and develop. Um, a little anxious uh, to see how she evolves uh, in daycare as the youngest one in the bunch, or in preschool as the youngest one in the bunch. But but really really exciting um a blend between personal and professional i i have a strong um bias towards improving the quality of canadian tech companies here and seeing many you know increasing the number of uh first-time founders that enter that vintage of of years that i've talked about previously i want to see many more first-time founders in 23 24 and 25 uh, than than the you know season second time third time founder because I think ultimately that has a cascading impact on on, on and benefit to the the Canadian ecosystem at large and, and frankly as someone who's East Asian I I've seen not too many East Asian founders especially those building an enterprise software or consumer software in Canada and I really want to do my part whether it's mentorship or support or something greater to be able to see if we can increase that. the the mix of uh, East Asian founders as a a proportion of total founders in the next several years in capital.
0: I love that. The last question before I open up the mic to you uh, would just be, how do you deal with hard times? You know, being an investor, you know, you have to meet all these different companies, you know, you don't know, hey, should I, you know, take risk or should I invest in this company? So how do you deal with those hard times? Do you have any kind of processes or things you do that help you out?
1: yeah great question um the world that we're in is is a world of unknowns and you know i, I certainly it's it's a it's a skill that i think we're all we don't all we don't all don't have a ten out of ten um um scoring but certainly one that i'm developing and improving over time uh, as a human being as an investor and you know frankly it's you know really trying to pause before a year run um and not be too reactive to what's, what's in front of you have a long-term mindset. And this is kind of obviously more kind of professionally, uh, to the, to to types of problems that, you know, we're seeing and experiencing as a venture investor in and out of our portfolio or in the market, just having a long-term orientation, uh, and, and balancing short-term thinking and, and execution with long-term thinking and making sure there's the right mix at all times there that kind of helps keep you level-headed, frankly, if you know, if you know what you're fighting for and you know what the, what's at the end of the line, um, you know, the journey kind of becomes much more pleasant and, and much more fun. And, and, you know, certainly having a good set of, you know, thought partners, um, teammates, uh, significant others to talk, to talk the heart, you know, to talk through, um, talk about it, whether it's kind of various challenges, the hard things that you're going through. Um, just having a sounding board and a thought partner, I think is always very helpful to, uh, from a, maybe partially therapeutic standpoint, but also just being able to, uh, battle test and, and, uh, trade notes and ideas of someone who may not have, uh, maybe may have more of a neutral standpoint or may have no, no idea what you're talking about, but could probably be a good kind of sounding board at a higher level and helps kind of reframe perspectives, uh, on your end. So. I think, I think all of the above is really important, but certainly having a good thought partner and thought partners that you trust and can be vulnerable to and kind of express your uh, the happy moments as well as the sadder moments or frustrating moments, I think is all really important to kind of getting through any hard times.
0: I'd really like to open up the floor to you to discuss anything, maybe how people can get in touch with you, learn more about you or information venture partners um, or just anything you'd want to chat about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think if you're a founder building uh, an early stage business that is reshaping the future of financial services and finance, I'd love to learn more about your business. Uh, if you're building in Canada or the U.S., uh, you can find me on at informationvp.com. Go to the team page. You'll see me or get connected to me through someone else, you know, on LinkedIn, or even just feel free to shoot me a DM uh, on LinkedIn. And, and if you're I have more colorful content on Twitter. If you're interested in following me on Twitter and want to slide a DM in there too, you can find me at Alex K. Tong on Twitter too. So, uh, But very receptive to meeting founders um, um, of all walks of life, building uh, towards the future financial services. And lastly, um, as I mentioned earlier, especially if you're East Asian, you're a first-time founder, you're thinking about making a plunge, uh, but you're not quite sure... whether you want to do it and you need that push or you need that guidance, please reach out to me. I'd love to I'd love to kind of grab grab coffee at you and, and uh, learn more about your idea and learn more about uh, how I could do to be helpful.
0: Awesome. Alex, it's been a lot of fun. Appreciate you coming on. Evan,
1: thanks for having me. This is a great show. I'm glad you're doing it.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.